Hi friends, this is David Gunger. Welcome to Undaunted, a podcast about radical peacemakers. This week, we are releasing two podcasts. This podcast that you're currently listening to is part two of our conversation with Robbie Damlin. If you didn't hear part one, please go back and download our first episode with Robbie. Because this is part two of our conversation with Robbie, we thought that today we'd give you an extra bonus episode with a brand new guest, Greg Khalil. So I hope that you'll check out both podcasts. Also continue to share with friends. It really helps us as a brand new podcast. Without further ado, here's part two of my conversation with Robbie Damlin. I had asked Robbie, as peacemakers, how do we deal with fighting off despair and not give up hope? Firstly, we can't give up hope. I mean, you know, the situation in Israel and Palestine, I think that we are, as an organization, one of the rays of light and hope that still exists. And I can't imagine looking at my grandchildren and thinking that I am giving up, never. And there are many, many people who agree with us but do nothing, which is the same as here. And also do not include people in the conversation that they don't agree with. If you don't include people in the conversation, and this applies very much here as well, the people that you don't agree with and you think you are superior to, they are going to become more radical. And so it's terribly comfortable to sit and talk to the people who agree with you, and it's very nice that they all come and hug you and tell you how wonderful you are. But on the other hand, if you cannot make an emotional breakthrough in the heart of somebody who doesn't agree with you, then you must look at yourself to see where your prejudice is. Why can't you see their humanity? Why can't you understand their pain? And that's an exercise. It's not an easy thing because for me personally, I've got a tongue like a viper. If I want to wipe you out, I can probably do that in two minutes. But I learned over the years that this doesn't help at all. All you do is close people down and they will never You will never reach their heart or their mind. And so you have to give dignity and you have to include them. And it's the way that you talk to them. And if you want me to give you an example, I surely can. I remember there was a disengagement in Israel. They disengaged from Gaza. There were all the settlers living on the border of Gaza who were removed from being settlers. And we decided at the parent circle, and we should talk about the parent circle, which we surely will, we decided that we should go and visit the settlers and show empathy for the fact that they had to get out of their homes, some of whom had been living there for like 30 years, three generations. And even if we didn't agree that they should have been there in the first place, in many cases they were sent there for cheap housing by the government. So we went to Gush Katif, it was called Gush Katif, which was on the border of Gaza, to meet these settlers, and they took us around, and they really believed, almost in a messianic way, that they would not have to leave, that God would prevent it. And we went into a house of one of the settlers, and I looked around me and I suddenly thought, wow, you know, You don't have to leave your home. You live in Tel Aviv. Nobody's asking you to push off. Have some empathy for this woman. And then she said, I can't leave here because my son is buried here. Now, in the olden days, Robbie, with her viper tongue, would have said, yes, and how many soldiers need to die before you will? 
But you see, I didn't say that. I said, look, you're a mother and I'm a mother and the Palestinian across the road is also a mother. All three of us have lost children. Wouldn't you do anything to prevent another family from experiencing that pain? And then she invited me back. And this is what I'm talking about with the rhetoric. You don't always have to be right. And this is a problem in, in conversation, you know. I was just in Congress and I see this huge um, polarization of people voting because they belong to a party, not because morally they feel they should vote one way or another, from both sides. You know, and, I, and, and that's scary because where is the person's integrity? How many people stand up and say, this is what I really think, not what my party thinks? And I, I think that um, watching all of this, I suddenly had this feeling there is the pro-Israel lobby and the pro-Palestinian lobby within the Democratic Party. That's insane. What are they doing? They're importing our conflict into, into their party and creating hatred between Jews and Muslims. That's, I can't imagine anything more stupid. So actually, leave us alone if you can't be part of the solution. And we had a long conversation about five or six Congress people from the Democratic Party about that. And we're going to come and talk, a Palestinian Israeli from our group, to try and bring this message, because it's important. Robbie, is there a group of people that you wish that you could dialogue more with, that you could have more conversation, more opportunities for learning? I wish we could engage more with the settlers. I, I think that's a very important part of the work that we're doing. And I would actually talk to the devil if he would agree to meet me. <laughs> We'll be back with more from Robbie Damlin. I was just in Sri Lanka and I gave a workshop with people who didn't know what happened to their children. There were a lot of those and bereaved people. And there was a woman sitting next to me and I could see she wanted to say something and she waited and then I told my story and that opened the room. You know, the first person that talks opens the room for other people if it's something honest and from the heart. And I said to her, what? And she started to tell the story of her, she lost her husband and her son. And in the beginning, it was so graphic. She told us every, and I stopped the whole workshop. I just let her talk for about 40 minutes because I thought that was more important than any other thing that we could do there. And she then told me that that is the first time that she's ever told that story. She's never told anybody. Can you imagine what was, you know, how much boiling up there is inside of this woman? You should have seen her face the next day. It was like somebody washed it all. But that's such an opportunity. And what, I mean, should I not be so grateful for being able to be just a catalyst in something like that? 
all of us can do something. It's the littlest thing. It's how you go into your shop and how you talk to the person. I think empathy is what we try to create. It means it's not about mediation. Empathy is even if I don't agree with you, I'm willing to listen. And that's really the main thing about everything that we do in the parent circle. And it's not that we're a bunch of saints. Don't imagine that we don't fight amongst each other and I'm certainly no saint. But there is that bigger picture that you realize that this message cannot just stay within the borders of, of our two places, that must go to other places and be a part of their lives. Can we talk about the book? Of course we can talk about the book. In fact, one of our future guests, Colin McCann, has a new book out. It's called A Perigone, which of course is a rather extraordinary name, but I've got used to it. It's like a shape that has no borders. It's a beautiful description. And it's based on the story of two of the members of the parent circle, Basam Aramin and Ramiel Khanan, who are friends, or I wouldn't say friends, they're probably family for me now. It's nothing to do with the conflict, it's above the conflict. And it tells their story with analogies to many other beautiful things, to birds, for instance. And I was so moved by this book and I actually learned a lot about Bassam and Rami that I didn't know, even though I've known them for so many years. Things came out there. I realized how terrible it must have been for Rami to be in the war and what he had to do in the 73 uh, Yom Kippur War and how that must have affected his psyche. And sometimes I see him becoming very angry very quickly. And then, you know, it's like, I think the whole of the Israeli and Palestinian nation are in some sort of trauma. I think that everybody suffers from trauma because you can't live in that circumstance and get up in the morning and have to listen every day also to leaders, which is similar to what you have here, who pontificate fear. And so that you wake up in the morning and that fear creates hatred and that hatred creates violence and, and that no knowledge of who your enemy is, your so-called enemy, never seeing his humanity would make you fearful. And many people here are fearful. Problem is fear doesn't do anything. You know, just get up and do something. You ask me, everybody can do something. You don't have to be some great Martin Luther King. You can just be a human being that treats other human beings with respect. You can just do something in your own community. There are things that you love and mean something to you. If it's animals, if it's, I don't know. But live a life that has some meaning for you. You know, I will tell you a story now that doesn't have to be on this podcast, but it's just a comic story. You know, once you get me talking, you can't shut me up. I love it. <laughs> I had to get out of my apartment in Tel Aviv because they were going to pull the building down. That was really the only way they could get me out. So I decided, uh, I have a very dear friend who lives in Jaffa, so I decided I'll move to Jaffa. So I come to Jaffa and I'm looking for an apartment and suddenly I look up in the sky and I see apartments to let and it's a new uh, project. So I phone up 
And the guy says, yes, come now, you know. And this is like the next day after I heard they're pulling the building down, which, by the way, they still haven't pulled down. That's a year and a half ago. But it's good because it got me out of there. One of the things I did was I gave away a lot of David's things. His music, you know, he was a musician too, and, and his books and stuff that I'd been hanging on to. But I discovered by writing him letters, it was much more meaningful. That's just an aside. So the guy takes me to look at the apartments that are too late. There are two apartments which are almost identical. And the one I feel good vibes. So I say, I'll have this one. There's no furniture or anything. Just almost identical. So then I meet the landlord, who happens to be the chief surgeon at Balenson Hospital. And he says, I know you. I heard you talking in a tent in Jaffa in the war. So I guess he's of my opinion. Then he says, would you like something to drink? And I say, yes, I wouldn't mind a whiskey. I mean, this is like eight o'clock in the morning or something. So he started laughing and so did I. And then he came to see what I'd done with the flat and he brought a bottle of whiskey. So of course we sat down and we started to have a conversation. And he tells me that he's just been to Ethiopia over the past three years because he went on holiday one of his nurses is Ethiopian and he took him to Ethiopia and he was walking in the street and he saw this guy with a stick through his stomach, he'd been in a fight. So he took him to the hospital and there wasn't anybody there to operate. So he operates on this guy in the hospital in the middle of nowhere and he then starts to ask them if they have non-invasive surgery, laparoscopic work. And they say no, so he decides he'll come and teach them with two other surgeons and three nurses. So they'd been doing this for a couple of years. And I think to myself, well, that's very nice, but it's not really very practical. How many people are going to be, you know, how many people will really benefit from this? And of course, I have to interfere in everybody's life. (laughs) So then I go to the most boring conference I've ever been to by the UN in Sweden. And who's there? The Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ethiopia. So, of course, the minute she comes off the stage, I'm there like, you know, one of these ticks that attaches yourself to your neck. And I tell her all about this project, and I think that it could be something much bigger and much more useful to Ethiopia. So she says, okay, here's my telephone number. And, I, you know, like I said, but don't you have a card with the like an email. She says, no, no, you don't have to email me, just WhatsApp me. Do you use WhatsApp here a lot? So I say, okay. So I phone her and then we arrange, the doctor goes with, to do the next lot of surgery, meets her, the Minister of Health and the university hospital that uh, where he did the first operations. And uh, The Minister of Health says, okay, let's turn this into a teaching hospital. So then he comes back, tells me all of this. I say, well, that's very nice, but how are you going to make it even bigger, you know? And I don't sleep before flights. So I'm lying there thinking in my head, what can we do? So we decide, let's have a conference. So he has a conference. We're going to have a conference now with 10 of the top doctors from Ethiopia in Bahidari in uh, Ethiopia and 10 top surgical nurses and we'll write a letter to Johnson & Johnson to ask them 
you know, Johnson Johnson have a little problem with the opioids and talcum powder, so no doubt they would be delighted to have some good news, to give all the equipment, and another medical company, and it's all happening. I haven't been to Ethiopia, I have no idea. I have all this correspondence with these people who call me Miss Rubia. <laughs> so isn't that wonderful? Like you, you suddenly can be a, a catalyst to change lives. I mean, this is saving lives. Yeah. So you ask me what people can do, and I tell you, just get off your ass and do something. <laughs> we'll be back with the conclusion from our conversation with Robbie. If you want to help support our podcast, Undaunted, you can do so by becoming a Patreon member. Members of our Patreon get exclusive content and bonus episodes. You can become a member of our Patreon by going to our website, www.telusgroup.org. Robbie, can you tell us more about your organization, The Parent Circle? So the long-term vision of The Parent Circle is to create a framework for a reconciliation process, which needs to be an integral part of any future political peace agreement. Look, we signed stuff on the White House lawn, no? And out of that came nothing because people were never involved. And so unless we have this reconciliation process, all there will be is a ceasefire until the next time. If you look at Ireland, they are not yet Northern Ireland in a position of, I'm not saying I wouldn't like to be where Ireland is, but they don't have peace. They have a ceasefire. So that's the long-term goal. So all the stuff that we do on the ground, the Flagstone project is called, uh, it's a parallel narrative project, History Through the Human Eye. We have more than a thousand graduates from this program. It's really a lesson in empathy for listening to how the other sees their history. And so they go to the Holocaust Museum, they go to villages that once were Palestinian that are now in Israel. They do a timeline of their own lives, they tell stories. Normally we take the same profession, so it could be doctors or lawyers or artists, 15 Palestinians, 15 Israelis, and they have to then do something with what they've done. This project lasts about three months. There are two very intensive weekends. There's some unilateral meetings and there are day meetings as well. And people go through a real transformation here because even the most liberal of people think they're liberal till they're really faced with what it's like to, what's the daily life of a Palestinian like? And how do the Palestinians see Israelis? You know, uh, there's this mirror image of like, you don't care about your children, or, and you know, if your children die from both sides, and you're just educating your children to hate, which is what the Israelis say about the Palestinians. And I say, look, you know, if you grew up in Daesh, a refugee camp, you don't need a curriculum to teach you to hate. So there's so much stuff that needs to come out and needs to be said and needs to be truthful. It's not about hugging each other and loving each other for five minutes. It's much deeper than that and difficult. And it's a building of trust. That's one of the projects that we do and I love that project because I think it's really, I've seen what people do after they, they created the medical people, created this booklet of um, 
phonetic Hebrew and Arabic for hospitals. So that if you're in a room with a Palestinian and they don't speak Hebrew, you can ask them in Arabic, do you need a nurse or vice versa. And we have a summer camp every year, which my grandchildren take part in. And they've grown up, you know, and now Nadav wants to be a facilitator in the summer camp. It's very important because it's like a miniature of what we're doing. And for them, it might be the first time they ever met a Palestinian. I know that sounds crazy. We work in schools. There's only like 400 schools, you know, with each one with like eight classrooms that we do. And, and these kids, if you ask them who of you have ever met a Palestinian, it's probably be nobody. And who speaks Arabic? Maybe one in the class. And who's been overseas? The whole class, more or less. But there's this total cutoff, which of course I told you, the cutoff creates fear, the fear creates hatred, the hatred creates violence. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse. So we can't give up. We have a wonderful women's group. This year, uh, uh, last year on International Women's Day, we had last year 200. 100 Palestinian, 100 Israeli women walked up uh, Rothschild Boulevard and gave flowers to the public, but on each flower was a note which said, we'd rather give you a flower than put one on a grave. Ravi Dema, she's one of my heroes and definitely my godmother of peace. My name is David Gunger. We'll have a brand new episode next week. I hope that you'll stay curious.